good to see everybody. Good to be back. <clears throat> you know, most of you know that we experienced the birth and passing of our granddaughter, Amelia Joy, four weeks ago. Anna sent out a, an email. I think it was last night. I think Jennifer shared it. So um, to share their story, uh, to give a little more, fill in some of the gaps. One of the challenges that we had was to keep everybody updated as we were going through our experience. I'd like to share just a few of my own thoughts um, with you this morning before we get started. Most of you know Amelia was diagnosed uh, about eight weeks into her pregnancy with a, a pretty severe genetic disorder called trisomy 13. It's pretty rare. There's a 13, I think there's an 18, and there may be one other one, but it's, it's pretty rare. And most trisomy babies uh, don't last full term. And so, and they're usually... Um, have pretty big disorders, physical disorders. And um, Amelia defied the odds. We, we described her as a little fighter. And uh, she went full term, which most trisomy babies don't. And uh, she was delivered at 39 weeks. And we were told going into it that her lungs hadn't been developed, so she would never take a breath. And, uh, you know, that's a challenge for seven months to be thinking those things. And so... And that she was in the, I think the last scale value was she was in the third percentile of weight. And they were wrong about both. And so we prayed the whole time. You know, we believe that God could have done a miracle uh, if it was his will. And we believe that he could if he chose to. The common expectation when um, somebody is given um, a terminal uh, diagnosis is uh, it's best to terminate the baby. And um, not that anybody pushed it, but that's sort of the general feeling. And the reason that people take that path is to soften the pain and the heartache that inevitably comes. You know, you have to go through a birth and, and all the experiences of that. But Anna and Cameron, I'm so proud of them. They chose to leave Amelia's life in God's hands knowing that he is not only the giver, but also the taker of life. And so they trusted God through the whole thing. We trusted God through the whole thing. So Amelia lived about 50 hours, which was 50 hours more than we were told. And what a blessed time that was. We got to know her and we got to hold her and love her. We had fun getting little footprints and handprints and all the things that go with it. Anna got a chance to to give Amelia a bath and, and Cameron experienced the real dad thing. He got pooped on. So they experienced the whole thing in a very short amount of time. For me, I think that it was described as a shattered dream. I have never experienced that kind of grief or loss in my life. I've had parents die. That's tragic enough. That's kind of to be expected, but not a baby and not a young life. And so it was pretty horrific. I'll have to be honest. There were a number of times where I called out to God saying, you know, enough is enough. She was, it was kind of touch and go off and on uh, for 50 hours. In fact, she actually died at one point and then she pinked up. And so she kept experiencing these sort of things that would uh, believe that she was passing on and then she would pink up. And so it was like this for a number of hours. So I cried out to God, I'll be honest, and I said, this, this feels unfair. 
it, it feels brutal. And so I asked God very boldly, fix this. And so I used the terminology with my wife. I demanded that God fix this. She was, oh, great. A pastor demanding God do something. But, you know, in those moments, you, you cry out to God. And it wasn't that I didn't have faith, because I did. And so God answered. She I had a beautiful evening with her. She never had another, another episode. And she just passed in her sleep. Pink. Beautiful. So it was a unique experience, but there's a a number of things that I learned through it. And I won't take all the time this morning, but you know, faith, saving faith is a very, very real, powerful thing. And you come to know that when you experience a shattered dream, something very, very difficult, something traumatic, something horrific. And so God did an amazing thing for us. He sustained us. We had questions. We still have questions. We don't know all the reasons why he did what he did. But here's what we experience. There is a a deep, peaceful confidence and a trust in God, no matter what the circumstances are, that he's in control. And my friends, that is supernatural because that doesn't come from a human heart. That's a work of God. God has a plan. We know the plan. We learn the plan. We teach the plan. And that plan is that all things that happen to us are for our good. And so you try to connect those dots. What does that mean? Well, the only thing I can say is that it means that we're transformed into the image of his son. A little bit more. Every step of glory by every step of glory. And ultimately, it's for his glory. I, 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 can't, I can't connect those dots. But I know it's for his glory, and I trust it's for his glory. And so that's the aim of life. That's the aim of death. That's the aim of all things in creation. There's one, one truth that we hung on to, that we clung to, and it got, really got us through, is that we believe that Amelia immediately went into the arms of Jesus Christ. She never experienced disappointment. She never experienced a heartache. And I believe that if we were on the other side and we could see her, we'd look down at us and go, you are the most pitied because you are still here in your body, in your flesh, in this world. And so finally, I just want to thank you for your incredible outpouring of prayer. There probably was hundreds of people Ann and Cameron have pretty public jobs, and so they know a lot of people. There were hundreds of people praying. And I am confident that we were upheld and sustained because of your petitions. Thank you for your notes and your texts. Thank you for your incredible outpouring of love and kindness, not only to to Sonia and I, but certainly to Ann and Cameron. And so how important that is became so real to me. The love of the body, the care of people, the texts, the emails, and the food. The food was good too. So I just want to say thank you. Um, and so we're still grieving. There's moments that trigger the reality of it. And uh, so, but we're, we know God is faithful. And we know he has us in our hands. And now he has Amelia in his hands in heaven. Father, we are thankful <clears throat> to be here this morning. I am so thankful 
for this wonderful body of believers that have been groomed in the power of your word and to show evidence of genuine agape, Christ-like spiritual love that goes beyond what the world can offer. We thank you for bringing us back this morning. I thank you for bringing me back this morning. What a privilege it is to be able to preach your word, to help people see Jesus Christ, to help them learn him, to help them love him, and to help them live out a life that brings honor and glory to him. So we're thankful to be here this morning. We trust in the power of your word. I now hand this to you and believe that you're going to do a mighty work this morning as we open your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this is the fourth and final lesson in our series on unity that we've entitled The Power of Oneness. And uh, even though I was gone a little bit for Amelia, I also had some vacations scheduled. So I want to thank Matthew and Caleb. They did a great job uh, of preaching God's word. And that's always a comfort for me when I'm not here. So thank you for those men and what they did. So the importance of oneness is underscored all the way through the Bible. It's a, it's a major, major doctrine. And especially in the Lord's high priestly prayer in John 17. That's in this prayer that we get a, a little unique peek and glimpse into the communication between the Father and the Son. We don't see this really anywhere else or very little in the New Testament. So it's a unique prayer. And listen to what he asked for. In John 17, 20 through 22, he says, or 23, he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone. He's speaking there of the apostles. But for those also who believe in me through their word, that they all may be one. Now look at the description here. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Unity has a powerful evangelistic effect on the world. He says in verse 22, the glory which I, you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as I as you have you has have loved me. So Jesus prayed here for us and what he's praying for one of his most intimate requests to the father is that we be unified. That we be one unified body. Just like he is unified with the father. That, that is primarily a spiritual unity. And what God wants us to be unified on is unified on doctrine, unified on truth, unified on our commitment to His will, all of which bring Him glory. And we become a mighty force when we're all focused on Him. And we're unified in the truth. We're unified in our commitment. And we're unified in our desire to bring God glory. We are a force that can't be reckoned with. And it's so sad that the church in general is so splintered and so divided. And so we are to model this oneness in a sense, in an evangelistic sense, so the world can see Jesus Christ. 
Listen to Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians. He says, now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's on the authority of Jesus and all who Jesus is, that you all agree that there be what? No divisions among you. And that you be made complete in the name, in the same mind and in the same judgment. In other words, discernment based on the knowledge of God's word. What God is describing here is unity, not uniformity. He doesn't want a church where everybody is exactly the same. The fact that we are here together today with different backgrounds, different levels of income, different levels of education, different experiences where we can come together and be unified, it's a supernatural reality because the world can't do that. The world puts groups together that are all the same. And so we can be different. (coughs) We should be different. We should be unique, and yet there should be a oneness. And one way that we attain spiritual oneness is to understand the doctrine of judging. I want to share with you a true story that I think will help illustrate what we experience today. The defendant was a young 23-year-old woman who had been arrested with a DUI, a blood alcohol level that was twice the legal limit. True story. And the judge carefully instructed the jurors that their job was to determine if the defendant had broken the law. Well, it seemed pretty much like a slam dunk to all those that were on the jury, that it was easy to see that she was guilty. And after listening to her attorney plead her case, the jurors retreated into the jury room, and one of them piped up and said, you know, I've had that much to drink, and I can drive okay. Kind of shocking to the rest of the jurors. Two of the jurors claimed in similar comments that they could drive well under the influence even when they're really super drunk. They're just careful. Then they discussed... The discussion turned to something a little more sentimental, and the jurors commented how kind she seemed to be. She's a very nice lady, and they're going to condemn her and find her guilty? Well, after three hours of fierce deliberation, one of them came to the verdict that she was not guilty and that she had not broken the law, and they asked why he came to that conclusion. And he protested and said, I can't vote to convict her because the Bible says, Judge not, lest you be judged. That's that's what we face today. That's the dilemma we face today. That is the perspective of the world. There's hardly any verse in the Bible that's more misunderstood and more misapplied than Matthew 7.1. We're going to look at it this morning. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. This is the one verse that the world has memorized. The one verse they know, they probably can't give you the address, but they know what it says. And the reason it's so popular is it's one way to avoid being held accountable. But you know what? Christians are often misled and misunderstand this passage as well. Let me illustrate this. If I were to say that this is two feet, I'm cutting out a little piece of paper, and it's two feet wide. You would say what? No. I would claim that you're being judging or judgmental. I would say you don't have a right to judge whether that's five inches or six inches or 12 inches. 
I have my own truth, and you're being judgmental if you're telling me I'm wrong. Is that judging? Could be. Might be. May not be. But that's what we face today. I've entitled today's message, To Judge or Not to Judge, because that's really the question. Are we to judge or are we not to judge? How we answer that, my friends, has a huge impact on the goal of unity and oneness. Whether we judge, whether we not judge, if we judge properly or if we judge wrongly, will make a big impact on our ability to be unified in the truth and unified in our commitment and unified in our desire to bring God glory. So it's a very practical concept, a very practical doctrine, and I can't think of any better way to wrap up this series than to deal with something that we're pretty much genetically led to do, and that's to judge. We're going to be looking at two passages. We're going to first look at James 4, and then we'll turn to Matthew 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount. I look back at the date on that for those of you who have been here for a while. We touched on this passage 11 years ago. Can you believe it? Been 11 years. Now, the theme of James is not as much theological as it is about practical, wise Christian living as it relates to preserving unity. So James is very black and white. And he addresses the heart issues. In chapter 2, he addresses the sin of partiality. In chapter 3, he warns about the destructive power of the tongue and how it divides and destroys. And then in chapter 4, he addresses the subject of judging. So we're going to be looking at verses 11 and 12. James writes, Do not speak against one another, brethren, He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. For if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Do we speak against one another? We probably have. And we might be at this very moment. What I want you to see, though, is that James grounds his exhortation in the fact that believers are family. And that's why he mentions that we're brothers or form of brothers in Christ three times. So he mentions mentions it three times. Brethren, brother, and brother. It's the word Adelphos. And it's used in two ways. It's used as family or biological siblings. But here it's used for brothers and sisters in Christ. And notice down in verse 12, he refers to each member of the body as a neighbor. So he's emphasizing here those who live shoulder to shoulder in a in community life, brothers and sisters. And so the emphasis here is that we're family. Why would we, in any measure, speak against one another? Why would we do that? And that's what James exhorts us not to do. He says, do not speak against one another. 
This is a present imperative, which means it's a command, an ongoing command, and it means that we are to never at any time ever speak against anyone for any reason. That's pretty strong. The Amplified New Testament and the ESV and the KJV translate it, speak evil against. That's a good translation. The Holman Christian Study Bible calls it criticism or don't criticize. In the NIV, I like it. It translates it slander. You'll find the root word interesting in the Greek. It means to kick with the foot. Now let that image sink in. When we slander or we criticize or we backbite one another, it's like a bunch of little children kicking each other in the shin. Quite a picture, isn't it? We're not to do that. When we slander or criticize others, we are harming them. We are behaving like little children. By the way, I'm teaching this because not because we have a problem with it that I know of, but it's to protect us on the beautiful unity that I believe we do have in this body by God's grace. I, I can feel it. I hope you can feel it. Some of the new people, they may sense it maybe more than us. Paul warned the Galatians of how destructive this is. He says in 5.15, But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you not be consumed or destroyed by one another. The behavior is far from the Lord's will that we dwell together in loving unity. Biting and devouring one another will destroy the church. And it has in many cases, just as a show of hands, how many of you have been in a church situation where they were biting and devouring and destroying one another? It's quite a few. You know how awful that is because you walk away stunned believing, I thought we're Christians. I thought we're supposed to love one another. I would expect it from the world and I get it from the world, but from my church, it's devastating. And it's really super challenging, and it has destroyed a lot of churches. Now, I want you to know that there are two kinds of judgment. The first kind is what we call unrighteous judging. There's an unrighteous kind of judging. And there's at least five ways that I found that we wrongly judge one another. First of all, we judge wrongly when we criticize one another out of sinful attitudes. Before James warns us about speaking against one another, he addresses them some sinful attitudes that motivate us to eventually to, to, to behave in such a sinful behavior. And he begins by asking a question in James chapter one, 4, verse 1. At the beginning of that chapter, he says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? Here's what he's telling us. And by the way, I think this is incredibly convicting. I think we all experience what I'm going to teach this morning. And if you're honest and transparent, you'll, you'll recognize it in your own life. And we prayed this morning that people would be humble enough to admit this in their own life. The source of disunity ultimately comes down to self-centered desires. And those desires, if not controlled by the Spirit, rage in our bodies. 
I tell the membership class that, you know, the world will tell us that it's all about you, it's all about you, it's all about you, but when you walk through the doors of this church, it's not about you. And again, I've not been asked to be on the welcoming committee. But it's true. When we come into this church, it's not about us. It's not about our personal desires. Yeah, we want to meet people where they are. We want to love people where they are. But it's about Christ. And it's about this body. And it's about unity. In verses 2 through 7, James gives us quite a list of sins that ultimately lead in conflict. He says, you lust. That means you have these hot desires, these hot personal desires, and you do not have, so you commit murder. That committing murder, by the way, I thought for sure would be the use of the tongue, but that Greek word, as far as I can tell, is always used of physical killing. I've not seen anybody kill anybody here, but we don't want to get there, right? And then he goes on to say, you are envious and you cannot obtain. So you fight and you quarrel. There's conflict and disunity. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. In other words, they're selfish so that you may spend it on your what? Pleasures. The central reality of all conflict and discord in the church is selfishness. It breaks out because people want their own way. And it's all about them and it's not about others. We're to consider others more important than ourselves, right? That takes the work of the Spirit to have that happen. And then he says, and for you adulteresses, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? What is he describing there? Spiritual adultery is worldliness. Worldliness causes conflict because it's in opposition to God's truth. Don't bring worldliness into this church in order to make it attractive to the world. We're supposed to be unique and different than the world. Not attractive to the world because we're as selfish and sinful as they are. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you not think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he made to dwell in us, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to who? To the proud. And gives grace to the humble. Look at verse 7. Therefore, submit to God and what? Resist who? The devil and flee from him. So strife then erupts with unbridled lust, with envy, with selfishness, with worldliness and pride, and certainly the work of the devil. It's amazing. It's a supernatural work of grace. If we can have this many people together dwell in unity. It's phenomenal. And you all, none of you are the same. It's a work of grace. So those sinful attitudes then are the antithesis of what's expected in the family of God who we are supposed to love and who we are supposed to support and who we're to care for. This ought to be a refuge 
from the junk that we see in the world. The judgmentalism that's in the world is supposed to be void in this body. Secondly, we judge unrighteously when we assume to know all the facts and motives behind a person's words and actions. We judge unrighteously when we presume to know why others act the way they do and think the way they do. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 2.11. This is a good marriage counseling verse. For who among men knows the thoughts of man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Here's the main thought. So even, even though the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. How many times have we wrongly judged someone and says, I know what they're thinking. I know why they're doing what they're doing. Now, sometimes we know our spouse so well and our family so well, we might, might just hit it right. You know, clock's right twice a day, right? And so we might just kind of get lucky and know what our spouse is thinking because we know him so well. I've also said that to my wife, say, I know what you're thinking. She'll say, What? I don't know if it's deliberate or not, but I miss it. (laughs) So I'm sure she's telling me the truth. We can't, just like we can't fully understand the thoughts of God, only the Spirit can, we, we really can't judge the motives and thoughts of others because we're not always going to be right for sure. How often do we make unrighteous judgments before we've heard what they have to say? This is a powerful verse, Proverbs 18.13. He who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. Listen, friends, if we're going to be unified and somebody is talking to us, whether it's a good conversation or a bad conversation, make sure that we take the time to really hear what they're saying, especially before we give advice or speak. I think it's probably true, and maybe you can relate to this. Somebody is talking with you. It's not a pleasant conversation. They're bringing up areas that you really don't want to deal with or that maybe you're guilty of, and the whole time you're thinking of a defense. Right? You're thinking, well, I'm, well, 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 yeah, but, but, yeah, but, right? And so what we're doing is we're not really hearing them. I, Sonia and I, I don't, I don't know what it is about get growing older together, but you'd think communication would just be perfect, and it's not. And she'll say to me so many times, and it's frustrating. You, you're not hearing what I'm saying. And then she says, all right, what am I saying? And then I end the conversation. No. <laughs> But it's true, right? I mean, then I repeat it, and sometimes I have it right, sometimes I don't. But I can tell you it's because I'm thinking about, especially if it's a rebuke or some sort of correction or something that needs to be dealt with, you're thinking about that. So one of the ways to make sure that we, that we maintain unity is really listen to one another. And by the way, here's a tactic that we teach in uh, Growing Kids God's Way. We teach repeat it. So... Is this what I'm understanding you're saying? It's just a little tiny phrase that helps clear up communication. So Proverbs 18, 17 says this, The first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. 
So this is a very, 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 very good reason not to make snap judgments. How many times have we heard one part of the story and we go, oh yeah, oh, I can't believe they did that to you. And then you hear their side of the story and you're going, oh, wait a minute. That's a whole different picture. It's amazing sitting across from a husband and wife, black and white views. He sees it one way, she sees it another. Somewhere in the middle, there's some truth. But how many times have we heard somebody criticizing somebody else for what they did? But in reality, when you hear the flip side of that from their side, it brings us to a whole different opinion about what's going on. It can be so misleading. I'll make a challenge to you. If you only hear one side of an issue, like say they're discussing something, you need to automatically be reserved and say, okay, that's what I'm hearing you saying. Don't make a final judgment on it. It's a very, very practical truth, right? You hear one side, don't come to an ultimate, immediate judgment on that situation. Because chances are when you hear the other side of it or you get more information, you're going to go, ah, wait a minute. That changes the whole thing. So the first then to come and plead their case sounds good until we hear all the facts and all the arguments, and then we make a decision or make a judgment. Otherwise, we're unrighteously judging. I've been wrong before. You've been wrong before. We've made judgment about somebody, and we didn't have all the facts. That creates conflict. Thirdly, we judge unrighteously when our standards exceeds God's standard or God's word. Matthew covered this in the teaching on Christian liberties and We decided that was a good subject because many of you probably haven't heard about Christian liberties. And the reality is that's the area that we live in. Those are the gray areas that Scripture doesn't give us absolutes on. It's areas that we can have personal conviction, and it's wrong to hold others to our standards of personal conviction when Scripture is silent. I'll tell you a good example would be, I won't ask... Some of you are comfortable going to Target because it doesn't matter to you that they promote LGBTQ. It doesn't matter to you that they have the, the restrooms with men and, and can go into the women's restroom as well as dressing. There's some people that, that that just doesn't bother. I'm not making a judgment one way or another. And there's other people that go, I wouldn't spend a dime at Target because of what they believe and what they promote. We can't really go to Scripture to say whether you shop there or don't shop there. Another example would be a school choice. That's a, that's a gray area that we see different opinions on. And as far as I know, we've stayed away from the homeschoolers hating the public schoolers and the public schoolers thinking the homeschoolers are weird and, and odd and, and, they're, and they're both in disagreement with what's best. That's an area of Christian liberty that we can believe that both can be right and still please God. Probably one of the best examples would be if you're sitting in a restaurant and you believe that you shouldn't drink wine or you shouldn't drink alcohol and you look across Texas Roadhouse, you're going to get a good steak. You look across there and there's some people drinking. And you don't believe that people should be drinking. You can't believe those people are drinking. And you're waiting for your third dessert. 
Gluttony's an issue, except at Thanksgiving and Super Bowl parties. But see, we, we, we think that those are, those are areas of, of Christian liberty. Um, we have not taught on it a while. The scripture does not call for absolute abstaining from alcohol. Uh, leaders are not to be addicted to much of it, is what scripture says. It does bring joy, but there's an awful lot of warning about it as well. Fourthly, we judge unrighteously when we gossip. This is a biggie. James, of course, warns about the devastating nature of the tongue in chapter 3. Listen to this. He says, And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets the fire, sets on fire the course of life and is set on fire by hell. How many devastating experiences of ruined relationships come from the tongue. I bet each one of us can remember things in their life where somebody said something to them that still stings. We remember those things, don't we? The tongue gets us into more trouble than anything else And James describes if you can control the tongue like a bit in a horse's mouth, you can guide the entire 2,000-pound animal. And the idea of that is if we can control what we say, which is the easiest to blurt out, it's very flippant, doesn't take any work, it just comes out. If we can control that, then we have some discipline over all of our lives. How many times has something confidential been shared with us and then we've repeated to others? How many times have we said, well, I'm not supposed to say this, don't tell anybody, but. Friends, that's gossip. Proverbs 17.9 has, or Proverbs has a lot to say about this. Proverbs 17.9 says, he who conceals a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. The idea here is that we betray the confidence of others. True love keeps it to himself. In other words, if somebody shares a confidence with you, True love will not repeat that confidence. We have a lot of integrity among our leadership. There's deacon meetings where they're talking about somebody. I have no idea the name. Others have no idea the name. But they're keeping that confidence while asking for wisdom on how to deal with a situation. And that's not betraying their confidence. Repeating it is harmful and betrays the person who's entrusted in us And what happens is, is that there begins to be suspicion. Reverse that for a minute. You tell somebody something confidential. And the next thing you know, 10 people know it. And you know how that had to get out. That betrays confidence. That's unloving. (coughs) That's an attack on unity. That's an attack on oneness. Proverbs 11.13 says, He who goes about as a table as a talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy conceals a matter. If we want to be trustworthy and we want to be known as having integrity, then we need to be secret keepers. 
Now, this is stuff that's not uh, at the level of church discipline. We're not talking about that. But I think that today, friends, that we can decide to never share what's given to us in confidence. We can decide that today and not do that from here on out. You know why we do that? It makes us feel superior. You know, like we're in the know. I know something. And what we're doing is we're stepping on that person to elevate ourselves. And that's sin. And that, that, that hurts and destroys the body of Christ. When we tell somebody in confidence, we ought to have the security and be confident that they're not going to repeat it. They're not going to spread what you don't want spread. That's integrity. I tell you what, that's almost impossible in the world. But it should be an absolute certainty here that we don't bring destruction on this body by, by gossiping and, and mentioning things that we shouldn't note. By the way, just as a footnote, if somebody comes to you and says, hey, I'm not supposed to say anything, but I got to tell you this, if they're doing that to them, they're doing that to you. See, we tend to think, well, I'm special because they're giving me all this information. Have you found it in your experience that they're probably telling stuff on you that you didn't want told? So really worry about somebody who always is sharing somebody else's information. Be, be wary of that because they're probably sharing that about you and that destroys the body of Christ that destroys unity in the church, that destroys oneness. Fifthly, we judge unrighteously when we judge by appearance. We profile, right? We profile by skin color. We profile by beauty. We profile by disabilities. We profile by size and weight and tattoos and piercings and hair color. I don't know how you feel about all that, but we really have to be careful not to judge. You ever judge somebody just on their looks when you get to know them, you go, wow, I was really wrong about them. They're a super nice guy or a nice gal. Jesus could not have been any clearer about this. He says in John 7, 24, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. There's an unrighteous judgment and there's a righteous judgment. Showing favoritism is a form of unrighteous judging. James deals with this in the church in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over here or sit down at my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? There, there had better never be prejudice here based on wealth. We had a family a long time ago that was known to have a lot of money. And when they first started coming to the church, I asked them if I could speak with them. And I told him, I said, you know, just so you know, just be flat out. Two things I want to tell you. First of all, we're not going to treat you any different because of your money. 
Sometimes churches cater to those people. And it's very subtle. They cater to those people that have a lot of money. And I secondly, secondly said, we're not going to be after your money. Because that's what they experience. People with a lot of money, they have a lot of friends. And they're invited to a lot of things, right? Because they have money. So we're not to judge according to, for, to wealth or physical experience. It's so clear that we're not to judge unrighteously because it creates this conflict and disunity. And friends, it is a terrible thing. If you've ever been in a church where there's, where there's uh, disunity, it's heartbreaking. It makes you not want to go to church or it makes you want to leave the church. And let's make a pact today that we're not going to do that that we're going to maintain oneness. James goes on to give another reason that we shouldn't judge one another because he who does, the scriptures say, speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. So here's what he's saying. When we wrongly judge and we unrighteously judge others, we commit two sins. First of all, we place ourselves above scripture. We make ourselves superior to what God's word says. We become a higher authority than God's word, and that makes us judges of the law. And by the way, if we're doing that, we're not doers of the law, we're breaking the law. Because we're not to be, we're not, God forbids that we be careless and destructive in our criticism and judgment. But secondly, notice, we place ourselves above God. That's a big deal. Look at verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. And then he asks this question, but who are you to judge your neighbor? What he's saying here is that when we judge wrongly, we take the place of God as judge. And he finishes, of course, with that Condemning question, who are you to judge your neighbor? In other words, God is speaking to us and he's saying, do you think you're God? Back off. You have no authority to judge. Only I have authority to judge in this way. So sinful judging then, I think in essence, reveals an incredible pride and arrogance. Do you feel it? I think we all do this. This is tough stuff. This is the, sh the word of God that's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's probably piercing your intents right now and exposing sin and exposing motives. So I hope we're approaching this with humility, recognizing that we may be doing this and are likely judging wrongly. In my study, I came to this conclusion. Avoiding unrighteous judging is very freeing. I recognized that in my own life as I studied this and I stopped doing it and I thought, wow, this is easy <laughs> it, because I'm not taking on a responsibility that's God. So here's my challenge. Free yourself from it. Free yourself from judging. It's, it's wonderful. You don't have to judge. God is going to judge. And he's going to judge perfectly. And he's going to judge righteously, and he's going to judge with perfect consequences if he so chooses to bring them. So here's my challenge, friends. Make it your goal and your aim to put people in this body into God's hands and let him take care of them. 
Free yourself from that burden of being judgmental. So let's free ourselves from that judging attitude. Now, I want to turn to Matthew chapter 7. And there's another way that we can avoid conflict and ensure that we're unified. And most of you probably know this. Some of you may not, but it it may surprise some to know that Scripture doesn't forbid all judging. There's no question that we're forbidden to judge unrighteously, but there's a form of judging that God calls us to, and that is righteous judging. Friends, there's a form of judgment that God forbids, and there's a form of judgment that God commands that we're responsible for. And this is what Jesus speaks of in Matthew 7, 1 through 6. He says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. This is the close then of the Sermon on the Mount and the Lord finishes here with some instruction about judging one another. Now the aim of this passage is in contrast to the sinful judgments of the Pharisees and the, and the, the, the uh, scribes who were guilty of hypocritical, self-righteous, harsh judging. So he doesn't condemn all forms of judging here. He just, he never asked us to abandon our faculty of discernment. He finishes here by giving us instruction on the right way to judge, but he's talking to those who have been judging wrongly. And he says in verse 1 and 2, he says, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in a way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Again, the backdrop of this is the exhortation to the scribes and the Pharisees who were judging harshly harshly and self-righteously and critically. And what he tells them is if you're sinfully critical to others, they will respond in kind. So if you're known as a judgmental, harsh person, Chances are others are going to judge you that way as well because they're experiencing it and they're going to come back at you. And so in other words, what we sow is what we reap. If we're harsh and condemning in the way we treat others, they're going to be harsh and condemning the way they treat us. There's something else here that I believe that he's speaking about that's more important. And that is, we will respond, we will be accountable at the judgment seat of Christ to give an answer for every single word we speak. So we will be judged. We will be evaluated on whether we are critical and condemning in our judgment of others. It's going to come back to us. In verses 3 and 4, Jesus exposes our tendency to be hypocrites. He says, why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye 
And do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you see to the brother, or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your eye, your own eye. So he uses hyperbole here. This is exaggerated speech. I wonder if Jesus, at that time he was teaching this, picked up a log. It's kind of absurd, isn't it? So it's hyperbole, it's exaggerated speech. So what he's saying here is that you're walking around like this and saying, hey, I see a law, I see a speck in your eye. I can't even get to you, <laughs> right? That's the idea. So his point here is that don't we have a tendency of seeing the faults of others by ignoring, ignoring our own faults? And sometimes those faults are greater, Ask your spouse. I bet you that it's easier for you to see their speck than it is your log. Right? We have a tendency to judge others and go, oh, that's obvious wrong. I had a, two, two situations that I wanted to share with you. Well, one, I was driving, I've used this illustration before, I was driving on the interstate and I was going... I don't know, I was going a certain speed, and this car came flying by me on the interstate. And I was so angry, I judged them. I go, you idiot. You need to slow down. I looked down, I was going 15 miles over the speed limit. We do that, don't we? How about this one? This is one I've been caught off guard. I can't believe they haven't responded to my text. I cannot believe they haven't answered my email. Good, godly people respond. And then I look down, I've got an email, it's eight days old. And they're waiting for me to respond. You see, that's, hypocr that's hypocrisy and self-righteousness. Look at five. He says, you hypocrite. Now, so what do we do? He says, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. His point here is that proper judging requires humility. And friends, that means that we have to be willing to deal with our own faults before we make judgments about others. Now, something very important here. I want you to notice the word then. He says, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will be able to see clearly so that you can help others. That's righteous judgment. He's not telling us not to judge. He's just saying, do it, do it with humility. There's a difference then between true righteousness and false righteousness, between God's ways and other ways, between truth and what's falsehood. And that comes through by the way of judging. So here's the point that I want to make. Humble, righteous judging preserves unity. And then he says in verse 6, Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Under the Mosaic law, dogs and swine then were unclean animals, and they were not to be touched. So Jesus picks up that imagery to depict vicious people who treat divine truths with utter contempt. And he tells us this, with some situations... There's a point where you stop giving them truth. Sometimes that's family. I've been asked many times, if an unbeliever in a family, do I keep saying it? And I say, no, I don't think you need to. 
Do they know what you believe? Do they know the truth? Yes, then quit saying it. Doesn't mean you stop praying, but you know, you, you just let up. At some point, in some situations, we're casting beautiful pearls before dogs and swine. So to apply this, friends, we have to make discerning judgments. That's a righteous form of judging. Now we move to the flip side of the question then, and so what does righteous judging mean? i got to move along pretty quickly here because we have communion, so bear with me. It means that we're expected to judge in two ways. First of all, it means that we're to judge teachers. We're to judge teachers. It takes wisdom and discernment to be capable of judging false teachers, but God tells us that we have to. Friends, Ephesians 5.11 tells us to expose deeds of darkness and false teaching is the deed of darkness. And we're to judge that. Matthew 7.15, he deals with it a few verses later. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Again, judging false prophets protects the church and keeps it unified. And that requires a righteous kind of judging. If you'd ever have a teacher say, thou shalt not judge, you go, "Uh uh-uh. Now, there's even an unrighteous judging against teachers. I've experienced that, but there's also a righteous judging that's appropriate and right. If we dare to confront and expose false teachers, then we're going to be labeled as unloving, judgmental, and probably, guess what the third one would be? Racist. Somehow they're going to get around to racism. And so, but the Bible is very, very clear that we're called to judge evil, especially when it affects the church. Listen to Romans 16. It says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching that you have learned and turn away from them. See the phrase, keep your eye on? It's the word scopiao, and it's where we get the word scope or telescope. Those who cause divisions with false teaching are to be scoped out. And you're to keep your eye on them. This is everybody's responsibility to protect the church. And he goes on to say that they're slaves to their own appetites. Now, we're also told that it's okay if you speak generally about false teachers, but don't be specific because it's unloving and it's divisive. But that's not true according to Paul. Paul exposes Hymenaeus and Alexander. In 2 Timothy 2, he exposes Hymenaeus again and Philetus. In 2 Timothy 4.10, he exposes Demas. And he even names two quarreling quarreling ladies in the Philippian church, Udiah and Syndike. So Paul names names. And he doesn't, didn't hesitate to make righteous judgments of their exposing them and their false teaching. And by the way, this also crosses over generally to denominations. Not always, not in every case. The Apostle Paul did the same thing. He says, I write something to the church about Diotrephes. That's another one. He was, he was loving himself and not accepting the word of God. So unrighteous judging then creates disunity, but friends, righteous judging protects and preserves unity. If we want to be unified, we have to know that difference. We have to know what's harmful 
And we have to know what God demands that we do in order to protect the church. And both are loving. Both are very loving. Finally, we confront sinful behavior. I'll finish up with this very quickly. We all know about um, James 5 where it says, If any among you strays from the truth and the one turns him back, let him know that he has turned a sinner from the error of his way. This is probably an unbeliever. We're to judge. Galatians 6.1, applying to the church, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, each look into himself so that you too will not be judged. The word restore there was used originally, now watch this, to prepare, to repair broken bones. That's why he describes it as being gentle. And we're to look at ourselves in humility. Finally, also we know that church discipline is a form of righteous judging. In verse 15, he says, If the brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother. Step number one is to go in private and determine if the person is in sin like you think they are. That's righteous judgment. Secondly, but he who does not listen to you or repent if necessary, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Step number two, if they won't listen or repent, take one or two other mature Christians to confirm the situation. This too is righteous judgment. In verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Step three, if they refuse to listen, then bring it to the entire church to bring greater pressure and greater encouragement on them. That is a righteous judging. And finally, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be used as a Gentile and a tax collector. Step number four, if they refuse to repent, then consider them probably to be an unbeliever. That kind of judging, my friends, maintains true spiritual oneness. So let's go back to the original question. I'll finish with this. Are we to judge or are we not to judge? How would you answer that? Yes. Good answer, right? If we're going to do this, it's going to, we're going to have to be wise. We're going to have to be humble. We're going to have to have mature discernment in order to judge in a way that pleases God. In a nutshell, then, this is what we've learned, and I'll finish here. We are forbidden to exercise unrighteous judgment, but we are commanded to exercise righteous judgment. And now that we know the difference, we're accountable. Father, we thank you for our series on oneness and how important it is. Lord, we ask that we would take very serious introspection and may your Holy Spirit bring to our attention this week as we're being sinfully judgmental. When we have a tendency to be overly critical, looking down our nose as if we're exempt from falling into the same sins as those we're judging. Lord, we're a judgmental people by nature. And it's going to take the power of the Holy Spirit to reveal to us and then be obedient to it. Help us to confess and acknowledge when we're being critical. But help us, Lord, also to be judgmental when we need to be.
when we need to be bringing judgment down on, on false teaching and sinful behavior where it's necessary. God, I have one last request. Please keep us unified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.